This morning, if we haven't met yet and you're new here, I want to welcome you. I know what it's like to come into a meeting like this for the first time, and we're delighted that you're here. And uh, if you have time to make it to that Connect meeting afterwards, uh, there'll be some folks who would love to answer any questions that you might have. Also, I just want to um, second what Vince just said about the Thanksgiving in an American home. When I was in uh, college, I spent a semester uh, studying in Paris, and um, I think there were two different times when families, local families, invited uh, me to come have a meal with them. And all these years later, I still remember those meals because I, otherwise I was just with students all the time. And what an opportunity with all these international students that, that are in this area uh, for, for us to open up our homes to uh, just give them an opportunity to experience life uh, with you and, and uh, your family, or if you're not married, life with you and some friends. So uh, thank you for doing that. I want to encourage you to consider that if you haven't done that before. We're in a series in Paul's letter to the Galatians. It's called Amazing Grace. And this morning we're beginning chapter 2. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And Gloria Robinson is going to read the passage for us. So prepare your hearts for God's word. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was, was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of the fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Thank you, Gloria. If you are new to the Bible, you may be thinking, what is going on there? What is that all about? These are not just empty words. These are living words that come to us from God. And uh, I believe God has something for each one of us here, each one uh, watching this morning. So let's look to him and pray as we get started. Oh God, we come to you as we gather, as we assemble on the Lord's day. We come to you as a people looking for mercy and grace in a fresh way. And we pray, Holy Spirit, open the eyes of our hearts that we might behold all that you've prepared for us in these living words. Enable us, I pray, to see the one true gospel. To see how you, the living God, preserve that gospel. 
and to enable us to unite around that gospel and to rejoice in that gospel. All these things could happen with your presence and help and we trust you for these things and so much more than we can ask or expect. In Jesus' name, amen. Two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room. Diametrically opposed foes, they emerge with a compromise. Having opened doors that were previously closed, bros, the immigrant emerged with unprecedented financial power, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians emerge with the nation's capital, and here's the piece de resistance. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened. Some of you recognize that. Lines from the musical Hamilton. These are lines about a private meeting between three men in June of 1790. It took place in New York City. The immigrant is Alexander Hamilton. The Virginians are Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. Now, these men came from opposite ends of the political spectrum, so things haven't changed very much in politics. But they got together for dinner one night, and they made a deal. And the deal got Hamilton financial as backing for his financial plan, and the Virginians got agreement to put the nation's capital right here on the shores of the Potomac. Now, if you think through your history of how many meetings you've been in, you've probably been in more meetings than you care to remember, and most of them maybe haven't amounted to much. But every once in a while, decisions made in a meeting can impact the course of history. The meeting in New York seems to have been one of those meetings, and the meeting that we're reading about here in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, is a similar meeting, a small private meeting, a group of men meeting up in Jerusalem, and yet it will profoundly impact the course of history. Like the meeting in New York City, this meeting in Jerusalem ends with the men emerging unified. Unlike the meeting in New York City, this meeting that we're looking at today, this meeting in Jerusalem, involved no deal-making, no haggling, no compromising, and no horse trading. Instead, these early church leaders emerged united around one fact, that there is one gospel and only one gospel. And that gospel is the same gospel for all people in all places and at all times. These men recognize the reality that Jesus' work on the cross is sufficient to atone for anyone's sins. Nothing can be added to the finished work of Jesus Christ. These men recognized that people like you and me, people are brought into full acceptance by God not by any works of our own, but only through faith in the finished work 
of Jesus Christ. That's what we're reading about here today. Now, what difference can this make for us here today? This happened a long time ago, far, far away. Well, th this can make a difference in many ways, but let me just offer one. We live in a world of division, don't we? Arguing over so many things, from wars in the Middle East to climate change to on and on from there. And you know, the division isn't just out there. I've never in my time as a Christian seen such pressure being experienced inside churches like ours. Churches under pressure to divide and separate over politics or vaccines and response to COVID or styles of music or so many other things. How can we come together? How can we stay together? What is a stable source of unity that's open to all people? The gospel is so powerful that it can reconcile people to God and also reconcile people to one another. The gospel is so powerful, it can bring us together and hold us together. That's what's coming into view in this passage. So let's look in on this sort of obscure private meeting in Jerusalem and let's see how it reveals this one true gospel, how it reveals the God who preserves and protects the gospel and how it reveals Christians uniting around that gospel. So we're going to just look at the three, uh, this in three steps, three scenes here. First, we're going to look at a visit worth remembering. The first two verses. Look back at verse one with me, please. A visit worth remembering. The Apostle Paul is writing. He's writing to this region of churches in this area of this Roman province called Galatia, modern day Turkey. And he says this, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now, if uh, you were here for the last message last week and the beginning here, there's this sort of this chronology that, that uh, the, the writer Paul is giving us of his early uh, years in ministry and his early travels. And it helps me to sort of try to put everything uh, together uh, and be able to see it. So let me try to explain um, from, from this map what's happening and when. Let's go back to about a year after Jesus ascended into heaven. There's a Jewish leader named Saul, also called Paul, who's busy persecuting Christians. He takes a trip from Jerusalem, which is circled down there at the bottom right of your screen on that map. He's traveling from Jerusalem up to Damascus. So he's heading north up into Syria. While he's on that trip, the risen Jesus confronts him. And through that encounter, Paul becomes a Christian. Now, surprisingly, he doesn't go back to Jerusalem, which we'd expect him to do. Instead, he spends the next three years in Arabia. You can see that in the lower right corner of the screen and in the, the uh, area of Damascus. So he doesn't go back to Jerusalem, but, but he spends the next three years in Arabia and Damascus. During that time, he does make one two-week trip into Jerusalem. 
but it's very quiet and he only visits with the apostle Peter, also called Cephas, and with Jesus' brother named James. That's, that's it. And then he's back on the road and he's preaching Christ. And for the next 11 years or so, he's up in Syria and Cilicia, up in uh, 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 the, that Cilicia area is, is what would be modern day Turkey. And Galatia is going to be near that area as well. So now the passage that we come to, it's about 14 years after his conversion. And I'm, I'm giving you my best educated guess on how all these dates fit together. We can't be 100% certain. But I think this is he's, he, he, the, the, the um, situation he's talking about here in our passage is about 14 years after his conversion. And God directs him. God gives him a revelation. God shows him that he needs to go back to Jerusalem a second time. He's going to make a second visit. Why? Why take this trip back to Jerusalem? Well, the, the reason he gives us is he needs to meet with the leaders there, those who seem to be influential. So those would be Jesus' apostles, right? And he's going to explain his gospel to them in order to make sure that he hasn't been running in vain. Now, what does he mean by that? When you read that the first time, at least for me, that, that makes me think, well, maybe he's not sure if he's preaching the right gospel. Maybe he's wondering if his message is a little off. And so he wants to run it by these guys to, to make sure that, that they agree with what he's preaching. But if we think more carefully, even about what we've read in chapter one, we realize that's not the case. That's not what he means by running in vain. Paul has already said that he got his gospel directly from Jesus. He didn't get it from a training school. He didn't get it from the other apostles. And he didn't need any training or validation from Jerusalem's leaders. The message that he preaches is the authentic gospel we heard last week. He's already said, if anyone preaches a different gospel than the one that he brought to them, let that person be accursed, even if it's an angel. So what does he mean that he might have been running in vain? Well, here's, here's what I think the situation is. Try and put yourself in his shoes. He's been up preaching the gospel to all these, these people in Galatia and, 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 and these regions where it's mostly non-Jewish people. And as he's doing that, people are coming to faith and churches are forming. But false teachers have come in and they're preaching a different gospel. They're preaching a gospel saying you've got to add to Jesus' work by coming under the Jewish law and fulfilling all those laws. And so Paul begins to wonder, what do the guys in Jerusalem think about what I'm preaching? Do they preach the same gospel? Do they support what these false brothers are saying or do they even tolerate it? Because here's the situation. If people in these new churches in Galatia hear that Jesus' disciples in, in Jerusalem support what these false teachers are saying, it's going to undermine all of Paul's authority. And it's going to cause what this gospel that he's, he's been building these churches on to be eroded and distorted and corrupted. And that's what he means by running in vain. It's going to distract people and derail these churches. And so he goes to take this trip to Jerusalem and he brings two people with him. One of them has been in Jerusalem before. He's a Jewish guy named Barnabas. The other, his name is Titus. He's not Jewish. He's probably been converted through Paul's ministry somewhere in Arabia or Cilicia or, or Syria or, 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 or somewhere, somewhere up there. And he's going to become, if you read your New Testament, Titus will show up again and again. He's going to become a key co-worker with Paul. In fact, one of the letters in the New Testament is called 
Titus because Paul's writing to him. So these three guys take this journey to Jerusalem. Now, pause. So what? Right? What difference does any of this make for people living in Fairfax in 2023? When you're over on campus next week or you're out shopping for groceries or you're putting together a contract proposal, why does any of this matter? Well, let's just slow down and think about the big picture here. God has a plan to show the nations his saving power. God has a plan to make the nations glad in Jesus Christ and to gather a church, a family, a new community to be with him in a new creation forever. For that to happen, there can only be one gospel in order to gather one people. But as things are going in the early church, it's pretty chaotic. It's a startup environment. And these false teachers are seem to be all over the place. They're in Jerusalem. They're in Galatia. And they're, they're distorting the gospel. And the whole project is wobbling and under threat by this false teaching. And so God does something. God gives Paul a revelation to go to Jerusalem and have this meeting. Behind this meeting in Jerusalem, I want you to see, if you can, with your mind's eye, the invisible hand of God. God is wisely and powerfully arranging all things for his glory. God is watching over his gospel. God is watching over his plan to make the nations glad in Christ. We call this invisible hand of God, if you will, God's providence. If you look hard, if you read the Bible account, you find that history is not controlled by blind forces. Fate, luck, chance. No, that's not what's in control of your life and of history. History is in the control of a wise and powerful and saving God. And God has called this meeting. And God is the hero of this story. And I want to just pause now and say, okay, that was 2,000 years ago. But how far does that providence of God reach? Does it reach into the meetings you're going to have this week? Does it reach into the ups and downs that you're feeling right here this morning as you sit here with us or as you're sitting at home? And I want to declare to you the same God who called this meeting in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago is still ordering all things, including your life. By his fatherly hand, he's at work for your good and his glory. Find rest and comfort in that. Visit worth remembering. Second, an argument worth having. Some things are worth fighting for. Here's one. Look at verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Verse 
4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. I mean, this, is the, this is the meat of the passage. I'll spend the most time here this morning. Let me ask three questions to open this up. First, why would Titus have been forced to be circumcised? Circumcision is a surgical procedure, removing the foreskin of, of uh, typically young boys. Uh, it's done, done on males. And it was part of uh, the, the Jewish religion. And I'll explain in just a moment why. But this is one of those places where to understand What's happening here, you have to understand the Old Testament. This is a good advertisement for reading the Old Testament. The New Testament is like the second floor of a house and the Old Testament is the first floor. You have to go through the first floor to get to the second floor. It's hard to understand what's going on upstairs if you don't understand what's going on downstairs. So to give you a little bit of background, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God calls Abraham to come and follow him. And God makes a covenant. He enters into a relationship with Abraham called a covenant. And there's a sign for that covenant. And circumcision is that sign. It's the sign for the men that are going to be in that covenant with their, with their families. In Genesis 17, I want you to hear these words. This is God's word to Abraham. He says, every male among you shall be circumcised. Every male shall be circumcised. Any uncircumcised male shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. If you want to take the Bible literally, there's a Bible command. Okay? Every male must be circumcised. Now, fast forward. Paul, come to faith in Christ. He's up in Syria and Cilicia and Galatia is preaching the gospel and people are hearing and they're responding, but they're not Jewish. And so now what happens when Titus, for example, comes to faith in Christ? Does he need to be circumcised? It's a Bible command. You heard it yourself just a moment ago. If, if you don't do this, you will be cut off from God's people. You've broken his covenant. So the question is, after Jesus has come and, and died and risen again. The question is, when someone who's not Jewish comes to faith in Christ, do they need to follow all the laws and rules and clear commands of the Jewish scriptures in order to be Christians? In other words, does a new convert have to become Jewish in order to be Christian? That's what really the whole letter of Galatians is all about. And the answer is no, because, do you know why? Because Christ has made a new covenant. And that covenant comes with new signs. The old covenant has been fulfilled by Christ and it is now obsolete. So Paul says it like this. A person is not justified by works of the law but through faith in Christ. Next week's passage, two, Galatians 2.15. The false teachers say, oh, no, 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 no. No, no. No, if you're going to be a Christian, it's faith plus. Believe in Jesus, that's good. We do that too. 
but you need to believe in Jesus and keep all the Old Testament laws, circumcision being sort of the summary for all the rest of that stuff. Can you hear what they're saying? This is so important. These false teachers are saying, you cannot be fully accepted by God unless you believe in Jesus and do something else. That is a false gospel. And this seems to be the same teaching that's circulating in the churches in Galatia. So this experience of these false teachers there in Jerusalem is just like what Paul was experiencing or what he's hearing about it is, is being experienced by these churches in Galatia. So he tells them this story in order to show them how this got settled in Jerusalem. And the important point here is Titus was not forced to be circumcised. He's a Christian, but he doesn't need to follow all those old covenant laws. Second question in this argument worth having point. What is this freedom that we have in Christ? These false teachers came in to spy out the freedom that we have in Christ. Are you a Christian? Do you know what your freedom is in Christ? We should know this. This is important. What's at stake here is not simply a surgical procedure or not eating pork. No, there's far more than that. What's at stake here is freedom or slavery. Now, we'll see this come up over and over in the letter of Galatians. But this is so crucial. I want to just make sure that we get this. These false brothers were spying out the freedom these Christians had found in the one true gospel of Jesus Christ. And they wanted to steal that freedom and return them to slavery. We want to understand what's at stake here so that no one steals our freedom and returns us to slavery. What's this all about? These false brothers wanted to bring the Christians back under the laws of the Old Covenant, but those laws of the Old Covenant are no path to freedom. Listen, the law, is the law good or bad? Well, the law is good. The law is as good as the God who gives it. And keeping the law should leave us no less joyful than it left Jesus who kept the law perfectly. Here's the problem. You and I, we're not like Jesus. What's the difference? We are fallen sinners. We are rebels who dislike God's law because it exposes our rebellious hearts. We just don't want anyone telling us what to do. We want to be a law unto ourselves. I remember, maybe if you've heard this story before, forgive me, but I remember uh, playing softball in university and in the field house, there was a sign. The first time I went in there, it said, no expectorating. And I asked somebody, what's expectorating? And they said, spitting. And as soon as I found out I wasn't supposed to spit in the field house, you know what happened? Oh man, I wanted to spit so bad. Why? Because I don't like anybody telling me what I can't do. That's why. And that runs deep in every human heart. And so when God comes along as the great creator and lawgiver and says, here are my ways, live in them, we say, uh-uh. I want to be a law unto myself. The law of God 
cannot set us free. It locks us up and imprisons us in our rebellion and sin. Freedom can never come from law keeping. Freedom comes from faith in Christ who kept the law for us and paid for all our lawless transgressions. And so let me pause. Are you, brothers and sisters, are you aware this morning as you sit here of guilt? Have you slipped and fallen? Maybe in a minor way, maybe for the 10,000th time, maybe in a terrifying, shameful way. I want to remind you of the freedom that you have. If you're a disciple in Jesus Christ, please hear this. You can never be more accepted by God than you are right now. God the Father is thrilled with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ satisfied God's laws and commands in your place, and you are in Christ. So God may feel a million miles away from you this morning, but he's as close to you as his spirit actually is in you. And if you're aware of sin in your life, don't run from God. Bring it to him. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Your acceptance before God is not at stake here this morning because Christ is still representing you seated at his right hand. Now, we keep the law of Christ not in order to be accepted by God, but because we've already been accepted by God. And oh, what a difference that is. Third question here, why did Paul and company not yield to the false brothers? Verse five, didn't yield for a second because Paul knows what's at stake here. If you read through Paul's letters, you'll find he can be very flexible and accommodating in many ways. He says things like, I want to be all things to all people in order to save some. But he can also be unyielding, unbending, and uncompromising when it comes to the one essential, which is the gospel. No deal-making, no negotiating, no haggling. This is the one hill he's willing to die on, and we should be too. We need to pick our fights carefully. So many Christians are squabbling about so many non-essential things, as we sang about earlier. So many secondary matters. We would do well to follow the wise old saying, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Well, Paul knew this was an essential, the essential and so in that, we must remain unified. And in that, we must preserve the purity of the gospel. So what happens? Well, this is a story with a happy ending, an outcome worth celebrating. Look back at verse 6 with me, please. He says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. 
Those, I say, who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I'd been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised also worked through me for mine to the Gentiles. When James and Cephas and John saw, who seemed to be pillars of the church, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing we were, I was eager to do. The story that we're reading about here, this visit to Jerusalem, is probably a year or two before this letter is being written to the churches in Galatia. Paul wants all those new believers in Galatia to know, hey, you know, when we hashed these things out in Jerusalem, we all agreed there's only one gospel. And we all agreed we're going to unite around that gospel. The brothers, those who seemed to be pillars, they didn't modify Paul's gospel. They didn't reject Paul's gospel. They didn't edit Paul's gospel. They didn't contradict Paul's gospel. They united with Paul in this gospel. And in the room where it happened, there in Jerusalem, they all recognized that there was one and only one gospel. And they'd all been entrusted with the same gospel, though they had different spheres of ministry. And this gospel is the same gospel for Jewish people and non-Jewish people, for the circumcised and the uncircumcised, for Galatians and Syrians and Palestinians and Israelis, for people from Russia and Rwanda and Bolivia and Belgium and every other place on the earth. They agree that God has assigned to them not different gospels, just different spheres of ministry with that gospel. Peter will be leading in the work to the Jewish people. Paul will be with Barnabas to the non-Jewish people. But God wants all the nations of the earth to be glad in Jesus Christ. And that includes our city and all the people that you'll encounter this coming week. And they shook hands over this. And they agreed simply to help out the poor, which I think is a reference to the poor in the area of Judea where there was a famine. And we'll see that a, an offering is taken and collected to be brought to those folks probably a couple different times. So what do we do with all this? There are no commands here, no imperatives for us to respond to. What do we do with this? Let me just leave you with two thoughts. I think this passage can leave each one of us grateful. I hope it leaves each one of us, filled with gratefulness. Can you see how God has watched over his gospel, providentially bringing this meeting about? God is the hero of this story, and the fact that we have gathered here today is evidence of the providential, wise, powerful working of our great God to preserve the gospel, to preserve the purity of the gospel, and to preserve the proclamation of the gospel, to get it all the way here to people like us. Oh, let us be grateful for the providential working of our great God. And let us be grateful this morning, O oh church, for the freedom of the gospel. We are no longer enslaved 
to lies that can't deliver. We are no longer enslaved to the ruling power of sin. We are no longer enslaved to a law that can lock us up but never set us free. We are no longer enslaved to our enemy, the devil. We have been set free in Christ. Isn't that good news? Gratefulness. Second, confidence. Confidence. O followers of Christ, brothers and sisters, you have full acceptance before God by grace. Live in the good of that. Let that settle into your heart. Nothing you can ever do will make you more or less accepted by God because you are in Christ and God is fully and eternally satisfied with his son. Oh, what confidence that can leave us with. Confidence. Do you know that same God who providentially arranged this meeting in Jerusalem and then providentially inspired the writing of it in Scripture and then providentially preserved these Scriptures so that we could read them and benefit from them here today, this same God is providentially arranging every strand of your story. Every line, every chapter, every paragraph, every word, you are in the Father's hands. And that's a good place to be. Rest in that. Confidence. Do you know, this same gospel which was the power of God to turn a persecutor like Paul into a preacher. This same gospel, which was the power of God to turn a pagan like Titus into a devoted follower of Christ. This same gospel, which was reaching both Jews and Gentiles, men and women, people far and wide, this same gospel is the same gospel that you believe that you have and that you're going to walk out of this room with as you go into your holiday season. Do you know that? The gospel hasn't changed. When you walk into this holiday season to the parties, the family get-togethers, when you bump into those people who are so lonely and hurting during this holiday season, when you bump into people like Paul on his way to Damascus who seemed the most unlikely ever to be converted, do you know, are you confident that you have the same gospel? It's still the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Live in the good of that. And out of that confidence, with love, you get to share that the people God brings to you. Now we're going to respond to God's word by taking the Lord's Supper. This is a meal for all who've repented and believed in the gospel and are following Jesus. If you haven't turned to follow Jesus, first, thanks for being here. We hope you'll keep coming back. I'd love to talk to you more. Others maybe who 
are near you or brought you would love to talk more about what it means to be a Christian. But we'd ask that you not take this meal that we're going to participate in in just a moment, but instead take this time to just quietly think and pray and maybe even seek Jesus. He's brought you here today. He's brought you here so that you can hear his offer of new life by turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. This morning we've been hearing about this sign of the old covenant, circumcision. Christ has come and made a new covenant. That covenant comes with its own signs. The signs of that new covenant are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we're about to experience the Lord's Supper. As we experience the bread representing his body and the cup representing his blood, these remind us of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection satisfying forever the demands of God's law on our behalf. No other sacrifice ever need be offered to make us acceptable to God. Receive this remembering the finished work of Christ. And as you come, I just want to encourage you to just take some time to reflect either before you come up or after you sit down. Reflect with gratefulness and confidence on the glories of Christ and this one true gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this meeting in Jerusalem that brings freshly to us the glories of the saving power of Jesus around which we unite. Thank you for providentially bringing the gospel all the way to us here today. And I pray this time of communion would be a time of communing with you that would be an encouragement to the saints. In Jesus' name, amen.
for those who are ready to head back into worship, we ask that you rise and we'll repeat um, that newer song that we learned. And we'll start from the bridge with Your Love Unites Us. Your love unites us, your love unites us, Lord. Oh, what can separate us from your love? 